Let's turn to Jude. This morning we're going to read verse 11. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Let's pray. Father, We tremble at your word because it is your word and not the word of any man. And Lord, as we now turn our attention to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and give us minds to understand and help us, God, for there are so many things that distract and so many things that, Lord, would seek to vie for our attention. We pray, Lord, that as we meditate on this text, that you would show us what it is that we need to see, show what it is that you want us to see in this passage. Lord, that we would have a greater appreciation and understanding for who you are, for what you've done for us, that we might worship you and honor you and praise you as you truly are. Lord, thank you for this special time to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and to read your word and to think about it together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things that Jesus is most famous for uh, is the Beatitudes. And most people have heard of the Beatitudes, or maybe if they don't know the word Beatitude, they've probably heard some of the Beatitudes before. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And many people have heard these things, and they like these things. This is what, one of the things Jesus is famous for. And when people read the Beatitudes or hear about the Beatitudes, many people think that this, this proves that Jesus is a nice, soft Jesus. You see? That he just came to earth to tell people, blessed are you if, you know, if you're struggling because things are going to get better for you in the future. A lot of people think this. That, that's the message of Jesus. Poor, hungry, tired, whatever it is, it's going to get better. A lesser known fact among most people is that Jesus pronounced a kind of inverted beatitudes. If you remember in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, when Luke gives his parallel version of the Sermon on the Mount, although many scholars call it the Sermon on the Plain and they think it was a different sermon altogether. But in that sermon in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says many of the familiar Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They'll be filled. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. But immediately after Jesus gives his famous Beatitudes, he gives a kind of inverted Beatitudes, where he then proceeds to say, but woe unto you who are full, you will be hungry. Woe unto you who laugh now, for you will mourn. Woe unto you who are comfortable, for you have received, these terrifying words he says, you have received your comfort in full. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? You have received your comfort in full. And what people often miss is that Jesus didn't just come and pronounce blessings on all, but Jesus also pronounced woes. A woe is a frightening thing, isn't it? The word is scary in and of itself, isn't it? Jesus pronounces 15 woes in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Fifteen woes in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Even though in the Gospel of Matthew, there is no inverted beatitude. These are fifteen separate woes that have not anything to do with the Luke chapter 6 woes. A woe is the opposite of the pronouncement of blessing. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, 
in spirit, for they will inherit, they, the kingdom of God belongs to them. He's basically saying to them, you are fortunate if you are poor in spirit. You are happy if you are poor in spirit because of what's coming. You shall be comforted. You shall rejoice. So blessed are you. If you just realized what was coming your way, you would be glad and see how fortunate you are. And the woe is the opposite of that. When Jesus says, woe unto you, what he means is, you are in a very unfortunate situation. You are in a miserable situation. And the reason you are in an unfortunate and miserable situation is because what is going to come, it is not going to be good for you. It is going to be bad for you. You have received your comfort in full. If you've received your comfort in full, then what comfort are you going to get later on? Think about that for a moment. What comfort does Jesus imagine they're going to receive in the future if they, if they remain in their condition? John Bunyan said this terrifying thing about hell. He says, when a man goes to hell, he can bid adieu to all pleasure. Adieu is the strong word in French for goodbye. No more pleasure. See, there's a rougher side to Jesus that people often miss. Not that Jesus is happy to say these woes. Jesus loves the world. God loves the world. God pronounces these woes because it's truth, but not because he's cruel or glad to say these things. Everything isn't all blessed, according to Jesus. You know, we often think of Jesus and God as uh, soft. You can go up and hug him. He's cuddly. He's not going to hurt you. But have you ever thought about God as sharp? You don't want to hug a big blade because it will cut you? That Jesus is not merely soft and he can't hurt you, but that he actually is the one who can hurt you the most. And of all the things that could hurt you, God can hurt you the most. And you don't just run up to God assuming that he's harmless. The Apostle Paul tells us, exhorts us, to behold the goodness and the severity of God. Have you done that? In your own conception of God, have you thought about both God's goodness, because he is good, of all the good things in this world and of all the things that could bless you and all, of all the things that could be good for you, God is the greatest. But the flip side is true, brothers and sisters. Of all the things that could hurt you, God is also the greatest. Have you thought about that? Now our text this morning shows us that Jude pronounces a direct woe to these false brothers who have infiltrated the church. We've been talking about these false brothers. Jude shows us that in his mind there is no mistake where they're going. There is no mistake what is coming their way. In fact, the doom of the false brothers is just as sure as the glorification of the true brothers. We've talked about how Jude has total confidence in the believers that God is going to keep them because God called them. And as, you, as we'll see in the end of the letter, Jude says God is most certainly going to preserve you blameless to stand before him in the last day. But just as sure that the believers will be glorified and will be safe and all will be well for them, so is Jude also just as sure of the doom of these false brothers. And this verse 19, when Jude says, Woe to them! It shows us the intensity of this letter, in case you thought it was a casual letter. In, in case you were reading this and thinking that Jude was kind of just writing casually and there wasn't a lot of passion and emotion in this letter, this verse removes all doubt. This is an intense letter. In fact, Jude is the only apostle who writes an epistle with a woe in it. This is perhaps one of the most intense letters in the New Testament. One of them, certainly. There's a few other that are really intense as well. And why is Jude so intense? Why is this letter so passionate? Is it because these people are sinning? Is it because these false brothers are, are, are uh, believing the gospel? 
believing just like you and I, but they're getting drunk on the weekends or they're fornicating? Is that why Jude is writing this letter? Is that why he pronounces a woe? It is not. As we've discussed in this letter already, the false brothers are actually denying the Lord Jesus Christ in a very subtle way. They're not coming and saying, yeah, I deny Jesus Christ. I deny him. I don't obey him. I don't listen to him at all. They're coming and they're professing to listen to Jesus Christ. They're professing to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But in fact, they're denying him. And they're denying him in this way, Jude tells us in, in verse 4, that they're turning the grace of our God into eselgeas in the Greek, into wanton, insolent lawlessness. They're saying that God is a God of grace. But the way that they understand grace is eselgea. The way that they understand grace is not righteous grace. Not that God is a righteous God who has grace upon sinners, but that God is lawless himself, that God is wanton himself, that God is insolent himself, and he just forgives people because he just forgives people. As we've talked about this, it's not that they are believing that forgiveness comes through the death of Christ. It's not that they're believing that salvation comes through the death of Christ, but that Jesus came to show us that God is just a forgiving God. He doesn't need the death of Christ in order to forgive and have mercy upon the world. Thus, they're perverting the gospel, and they're perverting the grace of God, and they're perverting the knowledge of God, and this is why Jude pronounces a woe upon them. If you sin in a general kind of way, but you believe the truth of the gospel, do you think that you should have a woe pronounced against you, or do you think any apostle would write and say, woe is you? What do you guys think? You're a Christian, you understand the gospel, you understand the grace of God, you're trusting in the true character of God, but you sin. Now, how many of you don't sin? Okay? If it was sinning that pronounced woes upon Christians, the gospel would be nullified. Because the whole point of the gospel is that by the death of Jesus Christ, whoever believes in him does not hear a woe against them for their sins, right? It's funny how sometimes as Christians we miss that. We read this woe and think, whoa, they must be sinning really bad and we're not, we, we are missing the point of the gospel. Jesus died so that you, you won't come unto God's wrath. And so no. And there's many examples in the New Testament where Christians are doing pretty bad sins. But never do the apostles write to them and say, woe is you. They say, what are you doing? Right? This is wrong. This is bad. This is not loving. This is disastrous. But this is not, woe is you. Because you've been delivered from this, guys. Jesus has cleansed you and justified you and made you right before God. Let's walk in the light of the truth. But only those who pervert the gospel and reject the true knowledge of God hear these woes. Think about the gospels. Uh, Upon whom does Jesus pronounce woes? Jesus pronounced 15 woes in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Upon whom does he pronounce those woes? Is it upon the tax collectors? Is it upon the adulterers? You guys have been following me around now for three years and you're still sinning. Woe is you. (laughs) Or is it rather, woe is you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have believed, but you haven't believed. Woe unto you, Pharisees, blind guides, who clean the outside, but the inward is full of dead man's bones. Jesus pronounced his woes upon those who rejected his teaching, who rejected him, even though these people professed to be pious and godly, and they professed to follow God. And so it is with these false teachers in Jude. It's because they're corrupting the gospel that Jude pronounces the woe upon them and those who follow them. Now, verse, in verse 11, Jude compares the false brothers and the false teachers to three of the most notorious malefactors in the Pentateuch or in the Torah. He compares them to three of the most notorious malefactors in the Torah. He doesn't only compare them, actually. He combines them. He doesn't just say, you guys are like this, Uh, he actually combines them together and says, 
They'd gone the way of Cain. They'd perished in the rebellion of Korah. I mean, that when, when God swallowed up Korah, they were swallowed up too. He doesn't just say, they're just as bad as these guys. They are these guys. They've gone the same way as these guys. To an American ear, it might sound something like this. Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Al Capone. They've rushed headlong into the error of Benedict Arnold, and they've perished in the catastrophe of Jim Jones. See, these are all notorious names in America. And so that would be shocking to say, what, those guys? Those guys who are in our church, that they have... They've run the way of Al Capone? What? They've perished with Jim Jones? Yeah, it's that shocking. And Jude is intending to shock his readers into reality and saying, this is what these guys are doing. You guys don't, it doesn't look like they're doing it, does it? But this is what they're actually doing it. What these guys are doing is a big deal. That's what Jude is communicating. Except what they're doing is worse than murder and extortion. It's worse than Al Capone. It's worse than betrayal. Benedict Arnold, it's worse than mass suicide, what they're doing. It's worse because they're corrupting the gospel. Jude also does not merely cite these three notorious malefactors and combines the false teachers with them to merely show the enormity of their sin, which he's doing, but also to show the nature of of the false teachers' sin. Because the false teachers, the nature of their sin is actually in common with Cain, with Balaam, and with Korah. All of these guys have, this, have the same sin in common. And this is what we're going to look at this morning, is what do they all have in common? This morning I'd like to examine these notorious malefactors to see what they all have in common and how it relates to the false teachers in, in the time of Jude and also how it relates to our situation today. So we'll look at these three malefactors this morning. It's important to do this because as Christians we can sometimes read these guys' names and really not think about what's actually involved in their sin and just kind of say, they've gone the way of a bad sinner and they've paid, rushed headlong in the, with a bad sinner and they've perished with the bad sinner. They're just bad sinners and we kind of just generalize it. But Jude has something a little bit more specific in mind that relates to the actual problem. So let's look at Cain. They have gone the way of Cain. Now what is the way of Cain? Think about it for a moment. What is the way of of Cain. And you can even ask yourself, have I gone the way of Cain? And what would it be if I've gone the way of Cain? What do we know about Cain? We know two broad facts about Cain. We know his story with Abel when they both brought offerings to God and one of them was accepted and one of them was rejected. And we also know Cain's murder. That after that event, Cain murdered his brother Abel. There's a few other things we know about him. He was a farmer. He tilled the ground. He also built a city. But I don't think the way of Cain is farming and building the city. I don't think that's what Jude has in mind. Otherwise, we might want to change the word agriculture to Cainology. Right? But it isn't. However, what is Cainology? If it's not agriculture, if it's not building a city, what exactly is the way of Cain? What makes a person Cain-like or Cainish or following him in his footsteps? Is it his murder? Many people would say it was his murder. Now, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. It's very close to Jude. I think you just have to flip a few pages. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. And the Apostle John probably shows us the most explicit theological explanation of what the way of Cain is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. And here, the Apostle John is showing us who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And he says that the children of God are those who love the brothers. The children of God are those who love Christians. The children of God are those who love those who are righteous 
through faith. If you love those who are righteous through faith and you don't hate them, then you are a child of God. And, Jude, and John puts it in the negative in verse 12. Not as Cain. The children of God are not like Cain. So here we go. If you are a Christian, we can, you can know for sure you're not Cainish. You're not in the way of Cain. There's a good clue. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and killed his brother. So John here does tie in murder with the way of Cain. However, it's more than murder. And John doesn't want us to just think of murder in isolation, that anyone who murders is like Cain. Because I know Christians who have murdered. Right? David murdered. I mean, it's not just anyone who has murdered is like Cain. So yes, it's murder, but it's something more than murder. It's not less than murder, but it's more than murder. Or uh, John also says hating. He, he combines murder and hatred. You don't actually have to physically kill someone, but if you hate someone who is righteous through faith, if you hate someone who is a Christian, if you hate a brother, you might not physically murder them, but you're like Cain. And here's what John says. It's not less than murder. It's not less than hate, but it's more than that. The second part of verse 12 says, And for what reason did he kill him? And here's what he says. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So before his murder, John is saying, his deeds were evil. In fact, he murdered Abel because before his murder, his deeds were evil. His evil deeds beforehand were the reason why he murdered Abel. So we're not supposed to just think it's murder, but it's actually that which went before the murder and that which caused the murder. It's something that's prior to the murder. And what was prior to the murder? I mean, if we read John here, why did he kill him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What was Cain's deed or deeds before his murder? The only thing that we know is his offering. The Jewish commentator David Stern says this about Cain, or the way of Cain. Cain's road led him to murder his brother Abel, but murder was not the road itself. It is his offering. It is what happened in that incident with Abel and Cain bringing an offering where we are to find the, what, what the way of Cain is. You can't separate the murder from the offering. Those two incidents are one. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, and now let's go to Genesis chapter 4, and we'll look at this story. God actually makes the distinction here between the way of Cain and his murder. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And you'll remember this. After Cain was rejected, after his offering was rejected, God came to him when he was Cain was, uh, his countenance had fallen. And God came to Cain and said, Why are you angry? If you do well, will, you not, will not your countenance be lifted up? Or some translations will say, If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do well, watch out, because sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must not let it master you. You must... Master it. And so here God is actually warning Cain and saying, Look, Cain, you can go two ways here. You can do what is right or you can do what is wrong. But if you do what is wrong, sin is going to overpower you and master you. But I want you to do what is right. In fact, in the, in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is the translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek by many Jewish scholars, they actually translate it this way. If you bring rightly, will you not be accepted? He's literally meaning, if you bring the right sacrifice, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, sin is going to consume you. The way of Cain is the reason why God rejected his offering. There's some evil in what he did. There was something that was not right in his offering. The reason he was rejected by God is the way of Cain. Now the question is, what exactly is it about his offering that was evil? There's a debate about this. Some people think, well, it wasn't Cain's offering at all. It was Cain's person. Cain, Cain brought the right thing. He, there was nothing wrong in the fruits that he brought. 
It was just that his heart wasn't in it. It was his person that was the problem, not his offering. But in the Bible, it tells us that Abel brought a better offering than Cain. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. That Cain was in fact rejected because of his offering. But we're not meant to separate the two things. The offering expresses his person. There was indeed something wrong with his person. But because there was something wrong with his person, there was something wrong with his offering. He did not bring rightly. And Abel brought a better sacrifice than Cain. All interpreters know that the offerings of Abel and Cain are the focus and are the real issue here because they reveal the persons. So the question is, what is the difference in Abel's offering and in Cain's offering? What is it about Cain's offering that, Cain, that showed Cain's person? There was something in his offering that was evil, which is the way of Cain. Once again, there is debate about this, as there almost always is when it comes to uh, the Bible. There are two sides here. Side A and side B, or interpretation A and interpretation B. Side A says this. Here's what the difference was. Abel brought a bloody sacrifice. Abel brought a lamb that died. His sacrifice involved blood. And his sacrifice was as it was prescribed by God. God required a bloody sacrifice. Both Cain and Abel knew this. Abel brought the bloody sacrifice and Cain's was bloodless. So according to view A, the problem was in the kind of sacrifice they brought. The problem was in the kind of sacrifice they brought. Abel's was bloody, Cain was not bloody. Side B, or view B, rejects this. And they say no. It's not about the kind of sacrifice at all. It, they didn't need to bring a bloody sacrifice. It just so happened that Abel was a, a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. That's just how it was. The real difference between it, between the sacrifices, was that Abel brought his best and Cain did not. And they appeal to verse 4, verse 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 and 4 of Genesis chapter 4. And maybe when you've read this, you've had a question over your head about this. It sure kind of seems like that's the case, right? It says in verse 3, it came, in the, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't really qualify it, does it? Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's what he brought. But look what Abel brought. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstling of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. And so side B says, well, look at this. It seems to imply that Abel brought a better quality offering. That the difference here is not in kind. That's not the problem. But it's in quality. If Cain had brought the first fruits and the best ones of them, then he would have been accepted. If side B is right, that the issue is quality and not kind, then what this shows is that Cain is a low-quality worshiper. And Cainishness, or the way of Cain, is not giving to God your best. If the first view is correct, then what this shows is that Cain is not a low-quality worshiper, but he is a false worshiper. And Cainishness is spurning God's instructions and worshiping falsely and yet looking like and imagining you are worshiping correctly. What do you think? Was Cain a low-quality worshiper or was he a false worshiper? You see, I believe... I'll tell you my position. <laughs> it kind of is in line with Jude. <laughs> I do not believe Abel was accepted because he brought his best and he was a good worshiper. And I do not believe, I do not believe Cain was rejected because... He was a poor worshiper, regardless of blood. But because Abel was a true worshiper and because Cain 
was a false worshiper. And that the issue here is specifically denying the necessity for blood. You see, later on, when we come to the law of Moses, God gives all sorts of statements about sacrifice. Now, we can either believe that God suddenly makes up all these new rules about sacrifice that didn't exist before, that sacrifice worked differently before the law or after, or we can see that the law of Moses, when it talks about sacrifice, is simply describing how sacrifice has always been. And God says in the law, a famous passage in Leviticus 17.11, that he has given the blood in which the life is to make atonement for your souls. That it's the blood that actually makes atonement for your souls. Now either that's brand new, either before in the past, um, fruits could make atonement for your souls, but now in the law God says, no, it's blood, or it's always been blood. And Abel and Cain both knew this. And this is why Abel brought his bloody sacrifice. Either God changes his ways, and now we all understand that the wages of sin is death, and that in order for us to be forgiven of our sins, and for our sins to be atoned for, and for us to be redeemed, that there has to actually be death, or God changed his mind later on. His moral government shifted. His righteousness and justice changed. And he later required death for salvation, but earlier he could have forgiven apart from death. I don't believe God has changed, but that God has always required blood, which is the life, which means death, in order for forgiveness to come and in order for atonement to be made. So when we read Abel's offering in verse 4, that Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat portions, we're not supposed to read, that's him bringing a better quality offering. We're supposed to read, that's him bringing the prescribed offering. Because not only is blood required, what we also learn about later on in the law is that the firstling is required, and that the fat is to be burned. And the Hebrew word fat can literally mean the fat. And so what Abel brought was the firstling of his herd and the fat, and he burned it upon the altar. And you can read that as a statement of prescription, what God had required, rather than a statement of, wow, look at the quality of Abel's offering. We see that God clearly talked to Cain and Abel, Because God talks to Cain after the sacrifice as if they were just talking face to face. So we can assume that they talked before. We also know that Abel believed and that his sacrifice was a sacrifice of faith, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice than Cain. But in order for it to be a sacrifice of faith, it wasn't him just sitting there thinking about what he should do. It was him believing God and what God has said. For as Romans 10.17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That God had said something to these men beforehand and Abel believed and Cain did not. It's also inconceivable to think that the details of this story in Genesis chapter 4 are completely unrelated to the details of chapter 3, that which went before, even though all the details seem so similar. Remember Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they, were, they suddenly realized that they were naked and needed a covering and they were ashamed. And what did they do? They went and they got fig leaves and they covered themselves. Now Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. Sometimes we see pictures of them, right? And they're naked with a little fig leaf over their parts. But they were covered. I mean, none of us would want to walk down the street like that, right? (laughs) We wouldn't feel very covered (laughs) based upon how Adam and Eve look in many of these pictures. But according to the scripture, they covered themselves with fig leaves. They actually created a garment that they would have felt more comfortable in. So you could walk down the street in fig leaves, okay? Well, if they were covered, why did God recover them? Why couldn't God just say, hey, nice clothes? I mean, you, na- you do now need clothes, but you've, you've made a clothes that work. Why did God have to take away the fig leaves? And why would he do that if, at the expense of a life, right? They were covered. Adam and Eve could have left there and just lived wearing leaves. 
But no. God said that's not acceptable, right? But it's, if, if, but God, that, why don't we just have leaves? It's wasteful to kill an animal to clothe us. We're already clothed. Because this is about the moral government and justice of God. In order for there to be atonement, in order for there to be covering, in order for there to be forgiveness, there has to be death because the wages of sin is death. And this is what we see when God covered them with the animal, that death is required in order to cover us and to make us acceptable before God. Someone has to die in order for us to be saved. Of course, that someone is Jesus Christ. It's always only been the death of Jesus Christ that covers us, but it's through sacrifice that this was symbolized. Cain rejected the knowledge of God. He rejected the truth of the moral government of God. He rejected that he needed a bloody sacrifice. Now, even the, the rabbis who comment on the story of Cain pick up on something here about Cain and listen to what they say. Now, notice that they go way too far. But notice what they're touching on. They're touching on that, that Cain is rejecting the authority and the truth and the government of God. But I believe that they go too far with this. Here's what they say of Cain. Cain believed there is neither judgment nor judge. There is no other world. No good reward will be given to the good. No vengeance will be taken on the wicked. Nor is there any pity in the creation or the government of the world. That's what the rabbis say Cain was thinking. I think they've gone way too far, but they're touching on something that Cain is spurning the government and the order of God. William Barclay says this, So also Jude commenting on Cain here, so also Jude is charging his opponents with defying God and denying the moral order of the world. C.H. McIntosh writes this, Cain treated Jehovah as though he were altogether such a one as himself who could accept the sin-stained fruit of a cursed earth. How many of you require death in order to forgive? How many of you are the judge? None of us. But God is not like us. God is our judge. God takes sin more seriously than we do. God is passionately concerned about justice. God requires sacrifice. McIntosh goes on to say, Cain's unbloody sacrifice, like every other unbloody sacrifice, was not only worthless, but actually abominable. Very important. It's not that it just doesn't work. It's that it's abominable because it's making a statement about God. It's saying that God is lawless. It's saying that God is wanton, that God doesn't care about sin, that God will be satisfied with something less than what justice requires. Cain's sacrifice was an abomination. Cain was doing his own religious thing. Notice he wasn't irreligious, but he was doing his own religious thing despite God's revelation. He was denying the justice and the wrath of God and the justice and the wrath that is involved in redemption. And this is exactly what Jude is all about. These false teachers have gone the way of Cain. I don't think they murdered anyone. Okay, It would have been probably obvious for the Christians if they were killing people. Something's wrong with those guys. You know? <laughs> The false teachers went the way of Cain. They were Cainish because they were false worshippers who spurned the blood of Christ, even though they professed to believe in Jesus, who turned the grace of our God into lawlessness. And they also will hate those who show them that they are rejected. If you want to be hated by the world as a Christian, just go up to, to someone who thinks they have peace with God, but they're not Christians, and tell them that they don't have peace with God. Right? They have gone the way of Cain. Secondly, they have, for pay, rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Now, with the Greek order here in Jude chapter 1, verse 11, uh, the, the first part of every phrase emphasizes the person that is, that is in view. So it would say, uh, the way of Cain they have gone. 
The error of Balaam, they have rushed headlong into for pay. The rebellion of Korah, they perished in. Every phrase starts with the individual that's in view. Literally in the Greek, it's they've poured themselves into the error of Balaam. Johann Bengel says, like a torrent without a bank, they're overflowing their boundaries and they're pouring into the error of Balaam. Now, what is the error of Balaam? What does it mean to be Balaamish? Now, again, we know a few things about Balaam. Uh, we know his, the earlier part of his, there's an early part of Balaam's story and there's a later part of Balaam's story. The early part is the story with the donkey, right? The early part is the story when God tells him not to go with the ambassadors of Balak to go curse Israel and Balak goes, or Balaam goes. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And the donkey rebukes him. The later part is when he causes Israel to sin by uh, going after Moabite women. So what is the error of Balaam? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. And as we've talked about, Jude and 2 Peter are really discussing the same thing. We can gain an insight from 2 Peter here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. The Greek words that Peter uses are almost identical, if not identical, with the Greek words Jude uses. Clearly, we're talking about the same thing here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Now, Peter is also talking about false teachers that have crept into the church that are under condemnation. And here's what he says about the false teachers. Forsaking the right way, and what's interesting is that in the Greek, the word right there is actually straight. They've forsaken the straight way they have gone astray. Plane in the Greek. Same word that uh, Jude uses. Plane. They've gone astray. They've gone off the right path. Having followed the way of Balaam, they've gone off the straight way onto the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's a statement about Balaam. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So according to Peter, when we're talking about the way of Balaam, what part of the story are we talking about? Are we talking about the donkey part of the story? Are we talking about the Moabite part of the story? The donkey part of the story. The madness of the prophet. What was the madness of the prophet? What was the way that he had gone? For he loved the wages of unrighteousness and therefore he went down that way, but the donkey rebuked him. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? Well, let's ask this question. What did Balaam do for reward in the story? Let's turn there to Numbers chapter 22. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we'll just highlight a few key verses. Numbers chapter 22 now, if you're familiar with the story, Balaam is a kind of a famous guy in the ancient world who's, who's famous for prophesying, prophesying and divining. And Balak is the king of Moab, and he sees Israel coming his way, and he can't defeat Israel. He knows that Israel is too much for him. So he says, well, I might stand a chance here if I get Balaam to come and curse them. If I get Balaam to come and curse Israel, then maybe I'll stand a chance. So Balak sends some ambassadors to Balaam and says, hey, we'll pay you handsomely if you come and curse Israel. You remember what Balaam says to them? Balaam says, okay, let me just inquire of Jehovah. So, in the night he inquires, what do you want me to do, God? They want me to go. God says, don't go at all. I have blessed Israel. You are not to curse Israel. You're not allowed to go with those guys. Period. So Balaam gets up in the morning and he says, sorry guys, see ya, God can't go. They leave. So Balaam seems to have done the right thing. When Balak receives the ambassadors and he hears that Balaam's not coming, he isn't satisfied with this. So Balak sends the ambassadors back and this time with a greater uh, reward. 
than the first time. The first time he just says, I'll pay you. The second time he says, uh, he will give Balak lots of things. He says, um, let nothing in verse 15, we'll start in verse 15, then Balak again sent leaders more numerous and more distinguished than the former. Now we've got even more distinguished ambassadors. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing I beg you hinder from coming to me, for I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then and curse this people. So before he says, I'll pay you, now he says, I'll do whatever you want. I'll do anything. Wow. Now Balaam's thinking, hmm, this is tempting. See, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. This was a tempting thing for Balaam right now. Now, what should Balaam have done at this moment? Should he have inquired of the Lord? He already did, did, right? He should have said, sorry guys, God said no. But because he liked the bigger reward, he said, let me go find out what God's going to (laughs) say. Okay? This is what happened. And look at verse 19. Now, please, uh, he says, you also stay here tonight and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. Okay? Now he's hoping God's going to say something different. And lo and behold, God says that he can go. You see, the sin of Balaam, it's too simplistic to say that he went with the ambassadors against God's will because technically he didn't go with the ambassadors until he heard God say go, right? So God didn't just say no and he went. God said no, but he kind of kept, he wanted God to say yes. But he wasn't going to go unless God said yes, but he wanted God to say yes. And so God tells him to go to teach him a lesson. Balaam would not go unless God said so, but he wanted God to say so. He wanted God to be lawless so that he could have a reward. He wanted God to change his mind about Israel. He wanted God to change his mind about him going. And God knew this, and so God said, fine, then go. And so he goes under a pious pretension that he's going because God said go. He's too, Balaam is a little bit too smart to go if God said no. He wants to go when God says yes. But he, he wants God, so God actually um, gives him what he wants, but he intends to kill him for this. And you look at verse 18. Balaam, this is actually um, false piety. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. See, he's smart. He knows that he can't do anything unless God says go. But he makes God say go by persisting to ask him. But then flip over to verse 32. And this is when the angel is now talking to Balaam. The donkey has sat down and Balaam's hitting the donkey. And the donkey says, what are you hitting me for? I've never done this in your life. In my life, your, our relationship together has always been smooth. <laughs> There's an angel wanting to kill you. The angel now is having the discussion with Balaam and the angel of the Lord said, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. So earlier, ba- Balaam says, I can't do anything contrary to the Lord. I can't go unless God tells me to go. And then the angel meets him and says, your way is contrary to the Lord. God told you not to go. You didn't want to listen to God. You didn't want God to be unchanging. You wanted to go because you wanted the reward. Your way is contrary to the Lord. And so once, we, once again, we find here that the error of Balaam is the idea of counterfeiting false worship and piety. It's when you do what you want to do because you want gain, but you're not irreligious. You're doing it under a pretense of true worship. But it's actually 
false worship because it's all about what you want and you're basically finding people or finding, you're trying to find uh, some loophole. You're trying to find words that will satisfy your itching ears. And, and when God sees a person like that, he'll actually provide for you as a way of judgment uh, words that you can rely upon and rest upon and say, yes, this is good. This is what I want. It's false worship disguised as piety. It's counterfeit. If we flip back to Jude, we see the teachers doing this very thing. For they're rushing after the error of Balaam for reward in verse 16. Not necessarily for money, although money could be the issue. But it says here in verse 16, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own desires. That's what Balaam was doing. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And so they followed the way of Balaam. Hoping that God is lawless. The last person Jude mentions is a man named Korah. And here Jude says that not only have they gone the way of Cain, bloodless sacrifice, and they've done that going after the way that they want because of advantage, they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. All these things are related. They've gone the way of Cain because of what they've wanted for their own gain and they perish. People that do this are condemned. The story is in Numbers chapter 16 and we can go there. This will be the last place we go. Numbers chapter 16 Korah's rebellion. This is a fascinating rebellion. And it's so important that we understand what this rebellion is all about. It's so important we don't generalize it and just think they were just murmuring and they were just bad sinners. And so these guys are bad sinners. We want to understand what is going on here. Because it's what the false teachers with Jude are doing. Now the story is, is that Korah, you can read about this on your, own, on your own in chapter 16, Korah and some other guys from the tribe of Reuben, even though Korah is a Levite, and 250 other elders in Israel, they complain and they grumble. And they come to Moses and they come to Aaron and say, what is up with you guys thinking that you're better than everybody else? Thinking that you have a privileged place in Israel? You're not the only ones who are special, special here. You're not the only ones who are holy here. All of Israel is holy. All of Israel is special. And Korah and these men wanted to be priests. They didn't like the fact that they couldn't go into the tabernacle and tend to the bread and tend to the altar of, of incense and tend to the lamps and that someone else had to do sacrifice for them. They didn't like the fact that they had to sit back and let other people do things. They're saying, what do you think, you're better than us? You think you're more holy than everybody else? All of Israel is holy. In this story, God is extremely angry. This is not a little thing. God is so angry, he does one of, the, one, another, one of those huge, profound miracles. He, the earth literally opens up and swallows all of them. And fire comes out from heaven and burns up the 250. All of Korah's family perished. All those who stood with Korah perished. And the 250 guys were burned to a crisp. God supernaturally destroyed these rebels. The amazing thing is that Korah is not blatantly sinning. He's not wanting to be irreligious. Okay? He's not saying, let's go after false gods. He's not blatantly saying that. He's not saying, I don't care about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I just want to just be recklessly evil. He wanted to be a priest. In fact, he wanted not only for himself to be a priest, but for everybody to be a priest. He was not upset with Moses and Aaron's leadership, but with their exclusivity. 
He wasn't saying, you guys are bad leaders. He's saying, you guys shouldn't be exclusively the ones who get to do all the, th- all the stuff. Verse 3, all of Israel is holy. And doesn't that sound good and religious? All of God's people are holy. Even if they were driven by envy, their envy is not the main problem. The main problem, it says in verse 30, in Numbers chapter 16, the main problem is not their envy. In verse 30, if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, that's what Moses is saying, and if they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have what? They spurn the Lord. This is not just about envy. Christians can sometimes be envious, right? You can be envious but not spurn the Lord. You can be envious and believe the gospel. It's not a good thing. But what these guys are spurning the Lord because of envy They're not saying, you know what, I'm kind of jealous of Aaron and Moses, but God has said, no, I can't be a priest, and that's what I'm going to have to go with. I don't like it, but I'm going to have to go with it. These guys are saying, I don't like the fact that Moses and Aaron are the only people, and Aaron's sons are the only people who are priests. I don't care if God said, that's how it is. And they're spurning the Lord. Of course, they're acting like they're pious and they're religious. Jude calls it the rebellion or gainsaying. And it is rebellion and gainsaying against God, even though it isn't blatant. If they say, you guys are spurring the Lord, they say, no, we're not. We just all want to serve him, that's all. God said no, but they say yes and disregard his authority. But it's not only this. We need to see something more than just they're spurning the Lord's commands because of envy. They're saying no when they're saying yes when God says no. It's more than this. They're making God lawless. They're making God wanton. How are they doing that? Here's how they're doing it. Because they're saying that anyone can be a priest, not only the ones that God has chosen. And brothers and sisters, if all are priests, then none are priests. Right? If you don't need anyone to do anything for you, then you don't have a concept of priesthood anymore. Or authority. You see that? I don't need a priest to do my own sacrifices. I can do my own sacrifice. I don't need someone to go in on the Day of Atonement with the blood to make sacrifice for all of Israel. Let's just put a name in a hat and every, we can just take turns doing it. It's not about someone needing to do it for us. It's just a, it's just a pra- pragmatic factor. We can't all fit in there. you know. If all are priests, none are priests, and there's no need for a mediator, this is what they're saying. I don't need a mediator. I'm a, we're all holy. We're all good. We're all able to come before the Lord on our own. And this is exactly what they wanted. This is exactly what they were doing. They were wanting to get rid of the priesthood. This is why the the rebellion at Korah is so much more than just people grumbling against Moses and getting swallowed up because they're being bad. This is the priesthood at stake. This is what they're doing. This is Israel saying, we don't like this idea of a priesthood, Moses. Let it be gone. Throw it into an abyss. And God, of course, threw them into the abyss, showing what he thought about that idea. (laughs) The flat-out denial of the priesthood. Why, however, did God choose a priesthood? Why did God choose a priesthood? Is it because Moses and Aaron are more holy than Israel? Is it because the priests are more righteous and able to make the... are, Are the priests actually the mediators? They're just symbolizing the mediator. They're just symbol, being symbolic mediators. But why is there a priesthood? What is the real reason there's a priesthood? It is a picture of Jesus Christ. It is a picture of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a sign that man is sinful and that we need a mediator. And this is what they were denying. 
We don't need that. God. God's nicer than you think. God's better than you think. God's more gracious than you think. God just forgives. And God shows what he thought about that. He swallowed them up because this is a big deal. This was a denial of the necessity of Christ and his priesthood. And so it is in the book of Jude that these false teachers, as we've been seeing, are flat out denying the necessity of the cross. They're denying the necessity of Christ as the true priest. They want to say that we don't need the death of Christ to relate to God and to be right with God, just like Cain did. That all are holy by God's gracious gift. That you can approach God on your own. And in fact, this is what Jesus came to show us. So they're not flat out overtly denying Jesus, but they are undermining and denying the Lord Jesus Christ by denying the necessity of his cross. A.C. Gabaline says, The sin of Korah was open rebellion and opposition against the authority of God and the priesthood he had instituted. These false brothers manifest the same spirit of rebellion and defiance. They have no use for the Lord Jesus Christ as the appointed mediator, priest, and advocate. And so Jude says the same thing in verse 16. He describes them just like Korah, grumblers, complainers, going after their own desires. Now, is this not an issue today? I mean, it might sound, okay, I'm seeing what you're saying in the Bible, but it doesn't seem relevant today. Really? Is it not the case that most religious people in this world, including many who profess to be Christians, basically see no need for the priesthood of Jesus? Basically see no need for a bloody sacrifice? And basically are choosing to believe and do what they want to because it makes them feel good about themselves and makes them have some kind of a reward and some kind of a gain. Woe to them, Jude says, for they shall perish if they do not change. They are as good as dead. Cain spurned God. Balaam spurned God. Korah spurned God. Yet they all acted like worshippers. The spurning was subtle, They were denying God's truth and their belief system and the way they were going was making statements about God and saying that he was lawless. The same thing is happening today. In fact, it's worse than it has ever been. False worshipers who deny the cross, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. You don't need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved because God is merciful. This is what they say. Even, Christ, even professing Christians will say this. You don't need to believe in Jesus. As long as you're a good person, you're okay. As long as you just try your best. I think everyone is actually good. And Jesus just came to show us how soft and nice God is. Woe to them. Woe to false worshippers. Woe to those who counterfeit grace. When God pronounces woes, he does not do it happily because he loves this world. But brothers and sisters, if we are to believe Jesus Christ and if we are to be disciples of Christ, then we must know that God is not just a soft God as many people think. But God is also sharp and he cuts and he hurts. And he is the one who can hurt a person the most just as well as he is the one that can bless a person the most. And this is because justice is real and woe is real. And the end result for people isn't all all going to be good. And there are people in this world who will not have comfort or pleasure for all of eternity. They're having their pleasure in full now. And the reason is because they are sinners under the wrath of God and they refuse to believe that they are uh, under the wrath of God. They refuse to believe in their need for Jesus Christ. They refuse to put their hope and their refuge in Him. 
thinking that all is well. We must never lose sight of this. We must never stop beholding the goodness and the severity of God. There are only two sides you can be on. You're either blessed, you are one whom God says, blessed are you, or you are one whom God says, woe to you. The Beatitudes are either true for you or the inverted Beatitudes are true for you. You are either a true worshiper like Abel who puts his faith in Christ or you are a false worshiper like Cain who appears to be religious and probably sincerely believes in God but he seeks to approach God apart from Christ through his own efforts. Which are you? May we hold to the truth and the faith that is once delivered to all the saints. May we help others also see how amazing and terrifying and awesome and loving our God is. Let's pray. Father, may we never lose sight of your goodness and your severity. May we not just see your goodness, but your severity. And may we not just see your severity, but your goodness. And thank you for your goodness, which shines all the more brightly in light of your severity. Thank you for your love that you have revealed to a sinful and evil world. Thank you that you love even those who reject you, Lord, and that you call them and invite them to be saved. May we also have your same heart for the lost. May we call people, may we warn people, even if we get rejected and hated. And Lord, may we always praise you and worship you and honor you through your Son, Jesus Christ, never standing on our own. May we always give you the praise that you deserve for being the awesome God that you truly are. For your name we pray. Amen.